Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Plain Talking UK podcast. It's a special edition, another special edition this time, because it's our review of some of our favourite parts of the show during 2022. And joining me is uh, our colleague, Matt, over in the PTUK Master Suite studio. Our colleague? What's that? <laughs> yes. How very posh. I know. I can say that. It's like, have I upset you, Dave? I'm sorry. <laughs> Not at all. Did you have a nice Christmas? Yeah, really nice. Thanks, mate. Yeah, not too bad. What about yourself? Yep, fairly quiet. I went down to the West Country, a little bit of driving down there, and uh, weather wasn't great, but it never is this time of year, unfortunately. True. But it was nice to get away for a few days. Um, so, uh, of course, that's the one thing you can guarantee here in the UK, is that um, if, it, if there's any kind of holiday going on at all, it will either rain, or it will snow, or it will be windy, or it will be all of the above. Yes. <laughs> And uh, across the pond is uh, our other colleague, as I'm going to call him, um, Armando. How are you? Well, that's the best thing I've been called in a while, so thanks, Nev. <laughs> what, what we haven't told the audience is that for 2023, we're elevating the show and we're, we're uh, starting the company you know, and... All each, Nev is the CEO of this. this <laughs> of course, <event>. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that's a given. That's a given. Uh, now, you probably noticed, unfortunately, that one of our colleagues is missing, uh, as, as we are calling them, it seems. Uh, unfortunately, Carlos is very poorly at the moment and is not able to join us with our little record. But he has sent us some details, so we will be finding out what his favourite moment from the, from, uh, the last year uh, coming up very shortly. Excellent. Um, so... What's uh, what should we start with? Should we start with uh, Armando first of all? Ooh, I think and so. uh, what was your sort of highlight of the shows in 2022 that you would like to uh, present to us now? That's such a tough question. I think we've been talking about this or kind of thinking about it for the last couple of weeks, and we had so many good guests. Uh, we had really good guest hosts too. Some of my favorite show moments from 2022 were actually just within between us and, mm. and some of our guest hosts. The interviews were great also. Um, to be honest, I, I think my favorite series for the year was the Chris Burwell interview. I mean, you guys did such a, a great job on that and you and Nick and um, really well produced. Uh, obviously, that's a little bit too long to play out for the for the New Year's <laughs> special. Um, and maybe we'll put that out, you know, separately. Yes. But yeah, that's coming up um, on YouTube very soon. In fact, yeah. Well, there you go. So I think my my good backup for this year was a short interview that you and Carlos did down at Jersey, and that was with Doug Smith, who is the team manager for the Red Arrows. Of course, I had to keep it military, but I just <laughs> thought it was really neat to hear uh, the behind the scenes. You know, as he's talking about his, the the team schedule and kind of the logistics, we we air show attendees always get to see the you know the aircraft and the pilots. But uh, talking to Doug, I think you guys highlighted how important it is for the entire <clears throat> support team to to come together and how many people it really does take to put it on an air show like that. So that's actually my pick for the, for this show is uh, Doug Smith and the Red Arrows. Well, I'm here with Doug Smith, and uh, Doug, you are the team manager here for the Red Arrows. Uh, uh, I, I am indeed, yes. Yes, I've been, been in position for uh, four and a half years now. And your, what, what does your job entail? What do you do for the team? So I, I do all the jobs that, that nobody else wants to do. <laughs> um, it's very much a, a planning and delivery 
piece. Uh, so back in the UK, so and, and obviously we include Jersey as part of that, um, it's, it's delivering the ground engagement, so the PR stand here, and in conjunction with my, uh, my colleague Andrew Morton, who's the, uh, the team PR manager, um, we, we coordinate everything on the ground within the UK. Now, when we then go overseas um, to, for example, we're doing a, a tour to the Middle East this year, um, we will uh, go and recce the sites beforehand, but it's all about um, trade and industry flying the flag for UK PLC abroad. So the, there's a whole bigger piece that's involved with that, and it's again planning, coordinating, and delivering that. So what go or how much effort goes or planning goes into? I mean, such as the air show here today. Mm. When does this planning start? For so, so as you can imagine, Red Arrow is an incredibly busy team through through the UK uh, display season. Uh, we we are planning on sixty five shows this year. Um, so we've just done Bournemouth uh, on the south coast, which is you know our biggest show of the year in terms of audience partic- participation numbers. Um, so a show like Jersey, we're probably only looking at it maybe a month out because we're continually sort of planning the next show and the next show. It's almost like uh, fighting the closer crocodile to canoe in that respect. So obviously with the things that's been going on over the last few years, it's been quiet. You know, things have been shut down essentially with air shows. Yep. Would you say that this year has been a busy year for the Reds? It has. Um, it is almost back to our traditional norm. Um, we... Sort of going into COVID, I would say anywhere between 70 and 80 air shows a year is, is wow. how much we would deliver. So to get back to about 65 this year, we're pretty much back to what we would normally have done pre-COVID. Um, but then I mentioned the overseas tour. That, that 65 doesn't include actually deploying for five, five weeks overseas um, to the Middle East. So that's another maybe half a dozen to ten shows that we'll do over there as well. Wow, because I saw you at uh, Dubai not so long back. Oh, were you there yeah, for the expo? So, yeah, 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 very good. Very uh, it good was fantastic. Yeah, it was. It, it was really good to get the team on the road again uh, and deliver something meaningful. And we're part of the Middle East tour this year. Uh, we will go back to uh, Abu Dhabi and, and do some delivery in Abu Dhabi. So, obviously, me and Nev flew in um, uh, yesterday for the uh, for the show, and it was quite the eventful uh, landing. At Jersey here it is. with the A319. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's, it's quite a small runway. Yeah. But you guys don't have a lot of uh, problems with that. Uh... Well, Jersey in particular, I think the runway is 5,800 feet. And generally, we like to operate on a runway that's uh, at least 6,000 feet. It's still within limits for us, but our problem with small runways is uh, when they get wet, the break, it affects the braking yeah. action of the aircraft and therefore actually reduces the landing length that we have. So it does create problems if we've got a wet runway on a small runway. Wow. So going forward this year, what have you got left in the programme for this year? I suppose you've still got air shows leading right through to the end of the year? Or uh, do you, do you have a well, not, point? not quite. So we, we're going to Northern Ireland um, uh, after Jersey. So the Jets depart for Prestwick on Saturday. Okay. Um, they'll display in Northern Ireland and then... The, one of the traditional sort of final displays of the season, and it's the old iconic shot over the Tyne Bridge, is the Great North Run on Sunday. So we will display and do fly past over the bridge while the, the runners are going across the bridge. Now, I live in Norwich, well, just outside Norwich. Yep. It was great to see you guys there a while back. Indeed. And it was very nice to see you all lined up yeah, there at Norwich absolutely. Airport. And it definitely sparked some interest yeah, with, yeah. Uh, with our locals in the area. Yep. But um, is there any sort of particular air show that, that you, you kind of the one you really look forward to I mean obviously Riyadh you've got Riyadh and uh, some of the big ones in the UK but yeah. are there any that stand out for you um, 
Do you know what? There probably isn't. Uh, and I say that because I think anywhere we go to, um, the, the the love for the, for the Red Arrows is just enormous. Mm. And, it, and it's, in some places, it's quite overwhelming. Um, one of my personal favourites is actually coming to Jersey. I think this is a terrific bay to do an air show in. And, and the people of Jersey, we've been coming here for decades now to, to display for them, and they just absolutely love it. So, uh, yeah, actually, personally, one of my favourites is Jersey. It's Jersey. Yeah, yeah. So, Doug, a bit about your kind of start in aviation. Um, where did that start for you? Uh, so, <laughs> I joined the Air Force back in 1988, so I, I'm just coming up uh, 35 years now. Um, and by far the best and busiest job is, is what I'm doing now uh, with the team. Um, it's a huge honour and privilege to do what we do. Uh, and I'm lucky because this is my second tour on the team. So, I, I was the operations officer. Uh, 2014 to 16, um, promoted off to work with the Chinooks actually at Odium for a year and a half, and then came back as a full-time reservist as team manager. And as a reservist, I I give the team a bit of continuity. So rather than uh, as a standard RAF officer, perhaps uh, do two or three years, and then the team loses that corporate knowledge and experience, um, I am essentially a permanent fixture. So I will probably um, do this job, hopefully, until I retire, um, which would be fantastic because it is just the best job in the world. Would you say as a team manager, Doug, that you, with obviously the guys that are flying the aircraft, but you are, you tell them what to do? Uh, Yeah, I mean, obviously I I don't have anything to do with with what they do in the air. Uh, They are very much the specialists in that and and kind of the best in the business at what they do. Um, So my my job is firmly keeping my feet on On the the ground. ground. (laughs) Um, But uh, like this morning, we we did a bit of uh, ground engagement with the Holidays for Heroes uh, from Jersey. So we had uh, 46 veterans up on the airfield. And um, it, it is about sort of corralling and herding and making sure that the correct people are in the correct place at the right time. If you had advice for the younger listeners that listen to our show, because we do have a lot of young people who listen to the show, and they wanted to to you know to get to where you are yep. as a manager yeah, or even uh, to, to do something like this within the Royal Air Force, yep. what would you so say I, the best? So I would say start early. Um, do the route that I did before I joined the Air Force, so uh, sort of... 10, 11, 12 years old, uh, look, look to become an Air Connect. We have Air Connect organisation j- just along the, uh, the avenue here. So that, to me, is the best way to trigger that, that interest in the Royal Air Force. And you can fly within the cadets. Um, then, potentially, university. Within universities, you have the University Air Squadrons. So, again, you can, you can uh, have the opportunity to fly. And, to me, that's the best uh, stepping stone to, to getting into the service. So, looking forward to the future now. So, obviously, you know, with what the job you do here, you want to stay in this position now for the foreseeable and yeah, kind of see how. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As I said, uh, you know, it, I think it's a very rare thing that somebody gets up for work in the morning, uh, looking forward to going into work every <laughs> single day. And, and, and uh, we'd all love to do that. I'm I lucky to have that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I get to do so many different things. You know, we're, we're here in Jersey this week. At Bournemouth last weekend, we get to, to go all around uh, the UK uh, and hopefully entertain and inspire um, the, the sort of younger generation. So, Doug, you spoke a little bit before we went uh, went recorded, but you're talking about your you had actually had a chance to fly uh, on the Hawk. What what was that like? Obviously, it, yeah. I think it's one of those things that 
a, a million people would love to be able oh, to have the chance of doing. Yeah, at least, at least. Um, so when I left the team as the operations officer in, in 16, uh, I was very, very fortunate to, to have a backseat trip with Mike Ling, who clearly is a, a Red Arrows legend. Uh, and uh, yeah, Lingy, Lingy, uh, uh, we, we, we performed Arrows for, for about 40 minutes. And uh, I think he did his best to try and make me ill, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I was good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, and it was just incredible. Uh, and for me, out of 35 years, that's, that is the best 40 minutes of my entire career. It was, it was just incredible. Wow. Well, it's like the first time you go solo. But yeah. For me, I, I won't forget that. Yeah, absolutely. In a hurry. But yeah, no, uh, it was incredible. Fantastic. It was incredible. It was the ultimate roller coaster ride. So I know, Doug, you're not a pilot yourself, but yep. we always ask a question when we talk to uh, people at shows and pilots and people within the industry. If you were given the chance to go up to Jersey Airport now yep. and there was a plane there yep. that you could go in and, and, and have a go in yourself, yep. anything, commercial yep. airliner, yep. GA, yep. military aircraft, retired, still flying, okay. anything, you had that choice. Yep. So would it be? I'll, I'll give you two answers to that. <laughs> That's fine. If I may. Uh, so I, I've spent 14 years at Odeon uh, with the Chinook Force, uh, and I, I, I love the Chinook. It, it really is the, the, uh, the workhorse of, of the Royal Air Force. Uh, and I've been lucky enough to float, fly in it many, many times as a passenger. <laughs> so I, I would love to have a go at a Chinook. Um, but actually, outside uh, Gamma Aviation this morning, there was a beautiful little, I think it was a Challenger 60, uh, and okay. a very, very nice aircraft. And uh, yeah, it would be quite nice to kind of fly around the world in one of those. So yeah, those are the two answers. That's, we, we definitely haven't had those before. Okay. Most people tend to go for fixed winged, to be, to be okay. fair. Yeah, yeah. We've got a lot of Spitfires, we get a lot of Concords, but no, yeah. that's, um, that's good to hear a yeah, yeah, yeah. choice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, well, I was just going by what's on the airfield this morning. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, clear. But Andy and myself, when we, when we the tour of America back in 19 um, we, we sat in the, the um, cockpit of Concord that, that's in New York uh, and, and uh, that's quite a treasured photo actually what an aircraft I bet yeah. I bet yeah. and I, I, I guess you've got a picture of yourself on, in one of the Hawks oh yes yeah. I, I've, I, I, I've, I've got a video as well <laughs> oh yeah, brilliant, it's brilliant. absolutely amazing well Doug it's been great to speak to you today mm. thank you for uh, taking time out to speak Not to us on the show Not and uh, yeah all the best for the future thank you very much and uh, have a great display yeah well f- fingers crossed fingers crossed the rain stays away I'm looking out to the south now where the, the weather's coming from and it actually looks really quite nice out there so just hopefully that's going to stay in that way to about half past four brilliant all the best brilliant. take care okay Bye-bye. thanks very much well, that was a great uh, piece, wasn't it, from Doug mm-hmm. uh, down at the uh, Jersey Air Show. Um, you, 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 had a, you had a great, I mean, because you guys, it's, it's amazing, wasn't it? You were like literally there for, what, two days, three days? And my goodness me, did you cram in a load of stuff. We did pack a lot in, <laughs> and, uh, but people were so generous with their time. Mm-hmm. And we had really, really good access to all kinds of areas. And yeah. uh, speaking with Doug just goes to show the amount of planning and work that goes into these shows and of course the red arrows they're they're fully you know employed all all the time so their schedule is very challenging indeed sometimes (laughs) yeah i bet i bet Uh, tricky times all weathers all all, you know and it's it's we we know from when things change because that was one of the things i remember like from farnborough we were so excited about showing off the red arrows to our um our american colleagues uh and then of course because of uh changes to restrictions and all that kind of thing it was so disappointing wasn't it to not be able to see them in their full flow (laughs) absolutely absolutely but um well in carlos's absence um he's sent over what his 
uh, highlight of 2022 was. Uh, and he says that 2022 was a busy year for the show with interviews galore and lots of great guests. But a standout day for him was the 400th show and meeting lots of our amazing listeners. I couldn't mm. agree more. That was fantastic. But he also said that one of the people we had as a guest speaker was a guy that he's known for many years and who gave a fantastic talk about engine inspections and what his job entails. So here is Peter Collings at the PTUK 400th show with that talk. Thank you very much. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, lovely. Right. Um, going to... Oh, lovely. Thank you very much. First of all, I just want to thank the guys for um, inviting me. It's a real privilege to be here today. I'm going to speak to you about engine uh, boroscope inspection, a little bit of background about engines themselves. I appreciate there's lots of people here who really know their stuff when it comes to aircraft and engines, so be kind on me, please. Um, so, where's my slide gone? That's a nice picture of me. I have my hair cut. It's very good. There we go. Um, so, I'll try and whiz through this, be quite, uh, quite fast, really, but I'll just tell you a little bit about what I do, what I get up to. Got a few little practical things here which we'll be coming around for you to have a look at. Um, but don't take Carlos's RB211 blade because I promised he could have it. Um, right, moving on. Come on, Mr. Button. I'll try that one. There we go. First of all, a little bit of background about aero engines themselves. Um, <clears throat> you can go back right to AD, 50 AD. Uh, we've got Heron of Alexandria, the steam powered Aeoli pile. Isaac Newton, a lot of names here, 1687, we heard Laws of Motion mentioned. Franz Stoltz, the gas turbine, of course Frank Whittle, Hans von Ohain, the Gloucester E28, 39, around about the World War II time, big developments. But they're all kind of focusing at this really, what is the most efficient and effective way of getting propulsion? And this is relevant to what I do, okay? Propellers had reached their limits. They were hitting the speed of sound. Okay, so we had this real problem. So the jet engine it was inevitable. The Rolls-Royce Conway was the first production low-bypass turbofan. So um, later on we had Rolls-Royce and other manufacturers, the RB211, with high-bypass. In other words, most of the air using to propel the aircraft rather than going straight down the, the centre. The RB211, the engine that simultaneously sank and saved Rolls-Royce, a place I used to work many moons ago. But the thing is, for these guys, um, all these people, they sought better propulsion, better efficiency for fuel and the environment, better longevity in terms of wear and tear, and better reliability and safety. And that all contributes to us being able to fa fly faster, longer, higher, cleaner and safer. And all of whatever we need to do travelling around the world uh, for us to be able to have, um, uh, enjoy flight effectively. Whether it be something that we use for our work, to see family members and so on and so forth. So just a very whistle-stop tour of the engine. I know some people know this already. Okay. Modern engines, I'm talking about the gas turbine, they're much more efficient and powerful and have much less wear than piston engines. One of the primary reasons for that is, well, bearings. 
everything is on bearings. And these things, certainly N2, turning at around about 10,000 RPM. Most engines are uh, dual or triple spool. So on a Rolls-Royce engine, you've got N1, N2, N3. On other engines, you might have N1, N2. Okay, come back to that. And you get wear on the blade tips as well. They do actually come into contact. This is a CFM56 first stage blade. Okay, and yes, you do, these do come into contact, especially during a compressor stall. The blades will actually hit each other. Okay, and when you do a boroscope, we're looking for a, a tip curl on one blade which has struck the other. They will bend and hit each other. When you um, have a look at these, by all means, if you want to take them and pass them around. Um, there's another one. <laughs> He's keeping it. Here you go. Here you go. Um, so you get the idea. Um, and the air enters the inlet. So you've got the fan here, but the inlet is here. Okay. Uh, and this is important. Uh, the fan's producing 80% of the thrust. Um, it's compressed by the LPC, low pressure compressor and high pressure compressor. It gets to about 400 degrees there alone. It's pretty hot already. Goes along, mixed with fuel and ignited in the combustor, 1700 degrees. Suck, squeeze, bang, blow. Bypass. Um, the high, yeah, following the theme from earlier. The high pressure hot gases, they go to the HPT, high pressure turbine, and that's what turns the high pressure compressor which brings the air in in the first place. Very special high-pressure turbine and nozzle guide vanes because the temperatures that they are at, this is a nozzle guide vane, guides the air into the HPT. Have a look, pass around. Some damage on there for you to enjoy. They're about £25,000 each new just for one segment. Um, that's worthless as it is in that state. Um, just thought I'd add that before it goes on eBay. Um, it goes through at about 10,000 RPM-ish. Then that goes on, that compressed um, exhaust air goes to the LPT, and that's so critically important, the low-pressure turbine, because it turns the fan. And the limits on the LPT are tiny in terms of damage you're allowed to accept. Okay, your fan is 80% of the thrust, the core, the rest of the engine, 20%. Okay, and then we've got gearbox uh, for accessories, uh, driving electrics, electric power, hydraulics and other systems, bleed air taken from the HPC for your cabin air, the start in the other engine if you want to do cross-bleed start, and there's uh, other bits and pieces. So all of this needs inspecting by uh, me. Um, I travel worldwide. Customers will raise a, a work order, which normally links in to a, um, a task card and an AMM aircraft maintenance manual or other maintenance manual task that needs to be completed. There are uh, regular inspections that follow a schedule and uh, there are repeat inspections as well, perhaps for a known defect, a crack on a blade, something that needs to be monitored. Some things are allowed to continue, they're perfectly safe. The manufacturers have tested these blades massively. They know how any damage will progress, but safety is so key here. Okay? Service bulletins where we discover something that needs to be developed or changed. Um, Pre-purchase, so somebody, for example, next week I might be off to France. Somebody wants to buy an aircraft. They want to see that those engines, you know, the most important, valuable parts of the, the aircraft, the engines, the, the undercarriage, okay, they want to know those engines are good. They want a full front-to-back inspection, both engines. And, of course, that location can be anywhere. It can be outside in Siberia. It can be in Dubai. It can be in 
Liverpool, anywhere in the world, okay? We've then got AOG, aircraft on the ground, 24-7, phone call and you're off. Oil leak, there's an oil smell in the cabin. Bird strike, does happen, okay? Um, high vibrations, compressor stall. And of course, we've got the maintenance, the different checks that take part. A being something that could be maybe done overnight and C and D being a substantial amount of time stripping the paint back, okay? Um, so how do I do it then? Um, there's a boroscope. Uh, boroscope's like an endoscope used by a doctor. Um, it's um, basically a camera, a long probe. The probe can be three or four meters long. The one I use is a six millimeter probe. You can get a four millimeter probe, which you would use on something like a business jet or for carrying out a service bulletin, where perhaps you've got to go down and look at the bearings. You can articulate the tip, and there are different tips that can go on there. Some of them are 90 degree tips, some of them are straight tips, and so on. Could go into much more detail there. And what I have to do is I have to put the boroscope into the engine in various inspection ports and their locations. And sometimes you've, you know, in something like a Trent 800, you've actually got to sit at the back of the uh, intake and uh, turn the IPC blades. When you've got N1, N2, N3, one of those sections probably doesn't have a gearbox. So turning it, it can be an issue. Okay? And I have to inspect all of these blades. It's carrot factory. Okay? There's a lot of work. So human factors is key. You can't be overtired doing this because you'll miss something. Okay? Important that you've got to be alert. The boroscope goes into inspection ports. We look at the low pressure compressor, the booster. The limits are very small on this. 0.045 inches, for example. Okay? A scratch can be unserviceable on the root of a blade. A scratch. Okay? You get a piece of paper, put a little nick in it, pull it, it's going to tear. I'm not saying this is an exact thing, but imagine a double-decker bus sitting on a blade. There is huge force on these blades, so we're not allowed to have too many defects. More complex part is the combustion chamber because you've got to do a 360 of that through the inspection port. Okay? Uh, back in the day, how would we have inspected an engine? You'd have to take it to bits. That's the only way of doing it. You'd have to take it to pieces. This was expensive, time-consuming. Later, we had the rigid boroscopes. Anyone who's used a rigid boroscope, you get real bad neck ache because you just sat like this the whole time. It goes in, but you can't move it around. You can't articulate it. Later on, the flexible boroscope came in, and um, we had just opened a new doorway, really. And, of course, with engines, uh, we touched a little bit on more modern engines, things like the CFM Leap, the Neo, and so on. This whole idea of being able to almost 3D print parts means they've got smaller, the combustion chamber taps, twin axular premix swirler. It's tiny, but the limits are very small on it as well. Okay, More efficient, less nitrous oxide. Um, dealing with the defects when you come across them, that's perfectly serviceable. Okay. That is serviceable. It's surprising what is serviceable and what's not. Something like that can be serviceable, but a tiny little nick on one of the blades that's going around um, can be uh, unserviceable. Uh, blend repair here. This is a repair. Blades can be repaired. If you find a defect, it is possible to repair it. A little milling tool, a borer blender. So on wing, somebody can drill off 
until you've got a smooth surface in accordance with the maintenance manual to be able to get that nice and smooth. So it is possible to repair some things uh, as well. Uh, so in terms of what would happen, we'd produce a, a Form 1, EASA or CAA Form 1, and uh, any reports and images would be, would be forwarded on. Any critical defects that are found will need to be measured. Okay, and we have to make a decision. It could be that we measure that defect, no further action is required. It might be there has to be a repeat inspection over a period of time to monitor that defect. It might be that there's a limited amount of time just to get that aircraft back to base. Okay? Worst case, or we could perhaps be referred to a manufacturer for further guidance from them. Finally, it could be unserviceable. Okay? That's quite a serious thing. Typically, it costs around about a million pounds in that situation to get the engine off and send it off. And that's the baseline figure. Engine overhaul. And the sort of defects we see are cracks, missing material, bending on blades from FOD damage, erosion, nicks, burning FOD, blocked cooling holes, that nozzle guide vein going around. That's serious because those things will melt if they're blocked. Volcanic ash, for example, sand turns to glass as well. Um, how do we measure the defects? So the boroscope has a stereo lens. Okay? If you think of our eyes, the picture there of the face, our eyes, we see in three dimensions. It's the same with the boroscope, and in essence what it does, there's a known angle between those two lenses, and it looks at the pixels on both sides of the image, and it can determine where they are in space. We've also got 3D phase measurement uh, by companies like GE, who are... Uh, that's a very clever thing to do with casting patterns onto an image and looking how the shadow changes. It's very clever, very useful as an inspector because you don't have to keep changing the tips on the boroscope all the time to make a measurement. Okay? And it's really great because you end up with almost like a grid, a mesh of the defect, and you can measure other parts afterwards as well. Um, the uh, maintenance manual gives us limits that we can make a decision, go or no go. And as I said earlier, some... Uh, defects can be repaired. The physics, that is a compressor disc that uh, unfortunately there was a defect from, you can, from the start. You can see that's in engine number two. You can see it's gone right through the exhaust. That came from engine number one. So the forces, as you can see, the physics, that is why it is critical that with the defects, a small crack can cause um, untold damage if that blade fractures off and goes downstream. Okay? But thankfully, because of the, the level of safety and the um, detail in which we inspect things, this is what we're trying to uh, avoid. FOD needs to be removed and retrieved. Bird debris, good luck coins. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Live scorpion found in the engine, you name it, okay? Birds nesting in the engine. Anyway, so um, when we look at defects, we identify them in terms of their location, where they are, that is important, because you need to decide, uh, based on where it's located on the blade, the direction, axial, engine shaft direction, radial, blade direction, circumferential, and the magnitude. Um, what engines can I inspect? There's a whole range of them. I'm not going to go through all of them, but it ranges from the business class uh, range aircraft, things like the BR700 series, CF34, the smaller series, 
um, the Pratt & Whitney 617 on the Phenom. The small and medium class, the passenger jets, the 737, A320, Embraers, CFM 56 Leap, V2500, CF 34-8. Um, the medium and larger size jets, 747787, 777, Airbus, okay? But don't forget APUs as well. Um, the APUs we do as well, we do inspections for. Some manufacturers actually don't require inspections for them. But just put yourself in a situation where you need to use the APU. I'm sure all of you know of a time when somebody needed to use the APU uh, fairly recently with a dual engine failure. So you can't just ignore it, especially with the ETOPS as well that we mentioned earlier. Okay, and also helicopter turbine engines. Um, other duties, so we do boroscope training, um, train engineers how to boroscope themselves so they can get an approval. Engine ground run training in the simulators, so engineers have to carry out tests up to full power. And it's very important that accident, um, sadly, that's actually at the Airbus factory, the aircraft struck a wall and was written off. Thankfully, everybody survived, but it took nine hours to shut down one of the engines with the crew still inside, engine ground run. So we have to train on the simulators. Uh, we have to train people just to be aware and react for those emergencies, which hopefully will never happen. Um, we also do consultancy services, uh, legal work, legal support. We help people with cost saving and so on. Um, and there's a very wide range of people that we are uh, working with. Um, life as an airworthiness surveyor, I think sort of similar things touched on earlier on. You can have a routine hot section inspection, uh, a combustion chamber at HPT. Uh, anywhere in the world, uh, you might be doing a, f a full front to back. Okay? And human factors, the environment, is it minus 32 outside in Siberia? Is it plus 45 in Dubai? What clothes are you going to wear? Is there any access? Some of these aircraft, especially because of COVID, have been placed on far sides of airports and there's just nothing there. Getting there, access to the engines, getting the ports removed, staging, security clearances, that can take days. COVID-19, all the paperwork, passenger locator, passenger locator, passenger locator, you know? Travel delays, remote locations, and the latest AMM, getting access to that as well. But I have a smile on my face. I'm very privileged to be able to do this job. And there are, I should add, a lot of opportunities for younger people who are interested, look at getting an apprenticeship, contact the latest MRO maintenance organisation, you know, plenty of opportunities. Things like plain talking is fantastic at enthusing people. It gives people to watch and listen to and, you know, an uncomparable variety of different people um, to hear from. So Superman says flying statistically is the uh, safest way to travel. I just want to leave you with these words for perhaps a few moments for questions, although I don't know if I've overrun. Uh, our enjoyment of the gift of flight today is a result of the many individuals um, who uh, take part in promoting its cause, thus facilitating its ongoing efficiency, development and safety for all. In other words, in other words everybody who works towards making it safe, efficient and effective. Thank you very much for listening and happy 400th mm -hmm. show yeah. to Plain Talking UK. Any questions? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Peter, I've got a quick question for you, if sure. you don't mind. Um, so over the years, I've managed to break a Trent 700, a CFM 56, and a V2500 twice. Have you got any tips for me going forward? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, I'm not entirely sure how to answer that, really. Um, I don't know. Go easy on the throttles. Uh, yes? Um, that's a complicated one, really. In the main, it's the, it's the YASA and the CAA. But there are times where you know, we're asked to consult with, with other authorities. That's a complicated process. Majority of people want an EASA Form 1. Um, obviously, the CAA Form 1 is, is quite um, important as well. Brexit has caused um, quite a lot of uh, confusion, understandably. Um, but yeah, it's mainly EASA and it's mainly two CAA and EASA. But yeah, there are occasionally times where not so much working with authorities, you know, we can just offer advice to people and you don't necessarily, because that advice, you're not, not giving someone a certificate. So oh, somebody once said, I've got an APU, don't, it won't start, can you have a look? That's all they wanted was for us to look inside it. Okay, so. Hi, yeah. Hi. So we always know aviation comes a lot of money. Yes. So when you get something that's a bit poopy, such as a volcanic ash, yeah. what happens? Do they just do they still call you in where they know, look, there's a high chance it's gonna be a little bit rubbish yeah. on the ground because it's in the vicinity. Yeah, sure. Like do they call you in or just go, look, we're just gonna replace it, we're just gonna sort it out ourselves? I think it depends if there, there will be a, a in the maintenance manual it will describe if you find volcanic ash. The other thing that I'm encouraging people to do is to do a radiation check in such cases um, because you'd be surprised. Um, generally, that will need inspecting because you want to find out what, uh, where is the ash, what cooling holes are blocked, and you can see streaks next to the cooling holes and identify where that is. And if anything can be done, I don't know if it can, that would have to go to the manufacturer. They would want a full, they would want a full picture and they would invest the money, even... Sometimes with an engine, m many times I've looked at an unserviceable engine. So I think they probably would spend the money to get a full picture. They'll get second, third, fourth uh, people just to get a whole range of different um, views on what, what's there. But yeah, a thorough inspection, definitely, yeah. Captain Nick. Peter, uh, great talk. Thanks very much Thank indeed. You. Um, when the 787 was suffering all its problems with Rolls-Royce engines... Yes. Uh, and uh, airlines were under huge pressure, as was the engine manufacturer, to uh, keep the aircraft airborne, a lot of engine swaps, etc. What I'm interested in is I, I saw some pictures of uh, some of the internals of the aircraft engines that showed enormous amounts of damage. Uh, I, as a pilot, would have you know, been horrified to see that these aircraft were still flying. So what I'm asking is, were the airlines and the engine manufacturers under any pressure to change what would have previously been considered bad damage to allow the aircraft to continue flying uh, under a new uh, modified series of limitations uh, that uh, wouldn't previously have been considered? Uh, I'd just say no. I, they just, from the start, this is the limit that's the end of that. Whether anything else happens, we wouldn't know about it if it does, but I would say I'm 99% sure this is the limit for the blades uh, and so on. And, you know, people can put pressure on, but there's only so far you can go. Um, Safety is key. It's that simple. Otherwise, you're in jail for 32 years, corporate manslaughter, okay? 
And uh, so it's a very good question. Yes, a lot of, there's a lot of stories one can bring to mind to do with incidents, to do with safety damage, things inside of engines. They have to, if there is an ongoing issue or a concern, a service bulletin comes out, they have to think of a way of dealing with it and you know, do, do these blades need to be replaced, for example? What can we do? But they, they can't, they're not going to ever move the goalposts. It's a very good question, but they're pretty merciless. And what would happen in, if, if there was an engine that wasn't any good, for example, some, somebody manufactured? Well, that's going to be a legal matter, isn't it? Were you who, who sets the goalposts? Inter- well, probably the manufacturer, I would and say. And they were the ones having the problem, though. So they were setting their own goalposts for their own engines. Yeah, what, what I'm saying is you, you, when you manufacture an engine, you, you're going to make a decision what's serviceable and what's not, and you're going to test things. And if anything happens, you have to take responsibility for it. So any legal repercussions and so on. But safety is always key, for sure. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Cheers. Well, you know, I think about engines and I think about automobiles and mechanics. And yes. Certain manufacturers of automobiles... Uh, and I think about Subaru in particular, it's one that comes to mind. The Subaru manufacturer would never say, with, when you get up to 100,000 miles, you're going to have to replace the head gasket. But every mechanic that ever worked on it would tell you that's what's going to happen, and you knew it. Are there certain things with certain engines that you know it's going to happen when it reaches a certain number of hours that the manufacturer is not necessarily going to speak about, but you know it's an automatic thing? Generally, the manufacturer will have... Uh, will be made aware pretty quickly when things are starting to happen, purely and simply because, well, it gets down to legals fairly fast. And there are, in the airlines and maintenance organisations, there are teams of people constantly doing legal work and looking for how money which has been unnecessarily lost can be reclaimed lawfully. And because of that, anything that happens pretty quickly, the manufacturer is going to uh, find out. CFM leap abradable liners I think the shrouds on the high pressure turbine there's problems and these engines what 2016 new engines and there's issues already you know so you know, there's, there's going to be a consequence for that you know on, a, on a, a leap engine very nice efficient engine but it's got blisks in it so that's like a complete so rather than having individual blades you've got a complete machined part quarter of a million pounds you get too much damage you've got to replace the whole blisk you can blend some of the damage out okay uh, but generally speaking the manufacturer will know pretty quickly there'll be service bulletins issued uh, procedures that need to be done but then yeah it's, it's really like with your car you know if you discovered you've got to take it back because the power shift gearbox doesn't work or something then you'd be going back saying well how want some money back here and that is what is effectively happening I believe so. Hi. Um, Hi. So, a really good talk, really interesting. I used to work for um, an aviation manufacturer and repair, yes. so I, I kind of understand where you're coming from with this. Sure. But what I'm really interested in is I, I used to work in inspections on def, um, fault, faulty parts. So, you go out to an airline, they say oh, the engine won't start, we don't know why. What, what kind of approach are you taking? I know, I know you do a wide range of different models, but what kind of a pro- general approach are you taking when you, when you get that kind of scenario happen? To be honest, when I... Because I spoke about the APU that wouldn't start. Actually, 99% of the time, we simply get a task that's raised, which is a, a routine inspection. 
where our job isn't to sort of problem solve. That will be down to the, the MRO, the maintenance repair organisation themselves, if there is an issue. Our job is to uh, provide an inspection. So the approach we take, it's very much laid out for us, in, as you probably know, on the work card to carry out the task and carry out the inspection and provide feedback. Occasionally, we'll get someone who'll ask us, would really like to see, can you have a look here? And they raise a work order, and we simply produce a report then. But if you want to issue Form 1, then you have to obviously refer in accordance with parts of the aircraft or engine maintenance manual. So really, in answer to your question, it's it's almost that we don't really do the problem-solving side. However, as part of our other roles, we do offer consultancy as a separate thing and we can you know somebody who look, who's looking to buy a 747 for example may come to us and we'll try and find one for them for a for, you know cargo conversion or something so sorry it's not very <laughs> direct answer to that okay lovely that's uh, brilliant peter thank, thank you, you thank you thank you very much thank you very much Part of me can't believe that the 400th was this year. It feels like such a long time ago. I mean, I know it was the start of the year, I suppose, so you can't get much more uh, sort of further back. And it was such an amazing, um, such an amazing time, wasn't it? And of course, what I missed, and I didn't realise until I think it was highlighted to to us by producer John afterwards, it was actually the first time in PTUK's history that all of us were all in the same room, all at the same time. Yeah, I know. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> to, to think that we, we just take it all for granted, really. But, of course, Armando was there as well. Yeah. Um, and everybody was. And it was just such a great it was. time together. But my only regret is I didn't have enough time to talk to everybody personally. That no. was the only thing that Indeed. I would say. But, but some of the guests that we had, in particular uh, Peter's talk yeah. on engine boroscope inspections and the detail that goes behind mm. it, some of the stories that he was telling. What did you think about that, Armando? Did you enjoy that as well? Well, I'd been flying for a long time, and I, I guess I, I knew that kind of stuff has to happen, but listening to Peter's talk, especially there in person, like you guys said, and he had a great slideshow, um, I learned a lot during, during that. You know, I thought it was going to be just you know, entertainment, but I actually learned quite a bit from him. And then we've had him on the show a couple times, and every time we do, he just – such a brilliant mind and so smart when it comes to um, aircraft engines and, and and these kinds of inspections and the safety behind it and why it's required. It does make me feel better <laughs> um, about every time I jump into an aircraft and, and I know that these kinds of things are, yeah. are happening. So um, I actually really appreciated Peter's talk. And of course, Neil, you know, Neil yes. Puffley was, was a great speaker too. Yeah. Um, great on the 400th and I, and I love that the five of us sort of left with a an ocean's 11 handshake that the, five, <laughs> the 500th uh we love our fans yeah. but the 500th i think we're just going to do by our by ourselves think, and yeah. our families together well and because that because that was the one thing that was highlighted wasn't it actually it's like you know that all five of us were in the same room at the same time and we spend literally no time with each other <laughs> it was just like because, obviously because you know it was such an amazing event and as i say we got to the end of it and i thought i didn't really get a chance to talk to anyone you know even our own team because we were busy sort of chatting to to each other so yeah i that's what i vote for anyway i reckon the 500 should be all about us 
just for a change. Um, we'll be a little then, selfish yeah. for a change. What do you reckon? <laughs> yeah, but you can you can imagine it's going to be a great venue. Wherever it is, it'll be yeah. a good venue. We'll have fun. Lovely. I can't wait for the production meeting on that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I suppose I'd better go now, hadn't I? Let's uh, see what uh, I'm sort of... I'm, I'm going to stick actually where uh, where Armando went actually and he was talking about some of the great interviews as I say, two in particular that Nick and Nev very kindly did for PTUK and uh, the the series that I particularly loved, again I think it's because it was the Nat and you sort of can't help but pin it to like the Red Arrows and all that kind of thing. So for me personally it's got to be Rick Peacock Edwards and uh, the amazing interview that he did. Uh, it was a three part series and I'm going to share with you this afternoon uh, or today I should say uh, part three of that great interview. Now I was completely enthralled by Roy Gamblin's description of his engine failure in the night yeah. and his subsequent force landing through cloud on an unfamiliar airfield and I kind of rode every minute of that with him mulling over the difficult decisions he had to make. For me the book was worth reading just for that chapter. Now you've had a long career Rick, anything similar in your history that comes to mind? No, I've never, I mean, well, if you read the book, there are plenty of stories of forced landings in there, whether it was um, my very good friend Bobby Eccles, who was instructed to Valley, went to the Red Arrows, or Roy Somerville had two forced landings from uh, while he was a Red Arrow. Uh, and then there's Roy Gamlet, and as you say, it's a fascinating story, uh, with Mike Hullier in the back. Um, I never had, I mean, we used, to, we used to train, as you will remember, we trained for force landings, visual force landings, and um, radar force landings as well. But at Lambetta, and we did, used, to, used to do radar force landings at Lambetta, but I think on this occasion, the, it was after hours, basically. <laughs> the airfield wasn't open. They did a fantastic job getting it on the ground, absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. Um, Roy, in fact, <laughs> he, to this day, he lives not far from Lambetta, Oh wow! He's in sight of Lambert. looks looks out and remembers it well all the time. <laughs> fantastic, brilliant. Now, many of the anecdotes in your book seem to deal with the numerous infractions and bent rules perpetrated by ex-fighter pilots at places like Little Rissington and Campbell. Surely there were a few responsible QFIs on the net. Yes, I was one. <laughs> of course you were. <laughs> so, there was, well, I, you know, I used to like to think that we were, we were professional and, and, and responsible, and I think we were in general. But we were fighter pilots. Um, and that was, in many ways, you know, we, we, we would... The first time these young students coming off the Jet Provost, and they used to love being at Valley, love being sort of um, with, with chaps like myself and yourself later on, who'd come back from the front line, uh, who were fighter pilots themselves by then. In my day, whether it was mainly hunters and lightnings, in your day it was harriers and phantoms and things like that. Um, so there was always spirit there, and you can read it right from the start. I mean, at one stage, for example, um, they were concerned about the Nats ability to fly, fly in formation. And you, yes, you, was bad, you read, wasn't it? You, yes. you read in the book there, a well-known uh, aviator called Al Pollock, <laughs> yes. of of uh, flying through sort of Tower Bridge for Yes, fame, exactly. Who who was an instructor at Valley, and uh, it was he and a few others who did some illegal formation, which actually led to the formation of the Yellow Jacks, 
the forerunner to the Red Arrows, but also sort of um, led to sort of getting the aircraft properly cleared for formation because it was a beautiful aircraft to fly in formation, absolutely lovely. Mm. Mm. It was, uh, and uh, despite the sensitivity of the controls, once you got the hang of it, it was it was really not ha a hard airplane. Nope. The engine response was very precise, yep. as I recall. Brilliant. It, you could, it, it sat there beautifully. No, I used to love the formation there. Mm. So how would you compare it with, say, flying in formation in the Phantom? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the Phantom, apart from being a war machine, uh, is an interesting aircraft in its own right with, with all the... Uh, the Different, different. The engines operate rather differently, and you're in an aircraft that's got sort of um, puff and blow sort of things all over the place. I mean, the Phantom. Don't get me wrong. The, the Phantom is is very nice in formation, very stable, and nice if you've got yourself settled. But it's 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 a big aircraft, twenty tons, versus the Nat, which is less than I don't know, less than one ton, I think. It, they're different, I think. Like any aircraft I've flown, I've flown, I've, I've enjoyed flying formation in all the aircraft I've flown. I have found them different, and, uh, and it's very often dependent on the size of the aircraft. Um, and I mean, you know, for example, in the Nat, those having the rate of roll being as it was. So you, 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 the one thing about the Nat, you could you could over control in pitch and, and roll. That's when you go into formation initially. That was probably a little bit of a problem, which quickly, set, like, like everything else, it just settles down and then you're rock steady. And the same with the Phantom, you get used to that puff and blow and what have you, but it gets rock steady eventually. Yeah, you really had to fly the nap with your fingertips. Yeah. Yeah, and the Phantom had that appalling engine lag that used to catch us all out every now and again. <laughs> Now, the meat of your book is formed from personal recollections from those who flew it or were associated with it. Um, how did you manage to bring them all together? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I published my first book um, two years ago, which is my autobiography called Rate of Climb, uh, which has sold very well. And I was having lunch with my um, publisher from Grub Street, and, and he said to me, he said, Rick, I want you to write another book. So at lunch, we got talking about what the book should be about. And that's how we came to, I said, a, really, a book that hasn't been properly sort of uh, um, covered um, is the Nat. Because I knew that people loved flying the Nat. I knew there were lots of stories associated with the Nat. And so that's how it happened. But we signed a contract in October 2021. Um, and... Um, I had to deliver a manuscript in March, middle of March, 2022. So it was a very short order. And I thought, at that stage, I thought, I think I'll get my mate, Tom Hills, to come and join me. So he, he came and we did it together. And it was the best thing that I could have done because we really worked exceedingly well together. We then worked out, the first thing we had to do was go out. We had our own stories, obviously, uh, to go out and, and let people know we were writing a book and get information back. Well, I'm not joking. We were absolutely amazed. Um, wow. We went out, we've got a lot of contacts ourselves, but for example, I mean, the Red Arrows sent it round to the world to get it out to their people. We got in touch with India, and once we got in touch with India and Finland, then the word went around there um, quickly. 
and we were absolutely inundated with um, people sort of contributing. In fact, I don't mind uh, uh, saying that um, we've got so much material that um, we've got enough material right now to write a Nat Boys 2. Oh, wow. Excellent. Um, You'll find in the book, there's, um, I think there's six stories from India. We've got at least another six or seven stories waiting for Nat Boys 2, which all depends on sort of um, how the sales go. So I really want the sales to go well so that my um, publisher will get us to write the next one. Oh, yeah, I think we'd, we'd, I'd love to read it. So, as well. but, but, so we were amazed at the contributions. And, and they all came in very quickly, and we did most of the work from January, February in, into beginning of March. And we submitted the draft on time, and it was um, published on time in July this year. Um, so we were well pleased with that. And, and um, we, the other thing that we introduced, which is in the book, is we, we, there were so many people who loved flying the aircraft, so many people contributed stories that we decided, well, you, you know, got people who contributed only a couple of lines mm. to a couple of paragraphs to a couple of pages. And then we've got others who contributed enough for chapters, as you've seen. So we thought, well, that's why we've got a section in there for what we call snippets and short stories. And, and that, I think, personally, I, I like because that gives um, uh, visibility to many more of those who flew the Nat and just their little sort of uh, cameos that they've contributed. Absolutely. Now, many of those stories told to us by the Nat boys um, mentioned being worryingly short of fuel. I know we've kind of mentioned it, but particularly after diversions and the like. Um, but that doesn't seem to have been your experience. Well, we were short of fuel, but I suppose... I suppose, you know, having flown the lightning, you, you just become, fuel becomes such, such an important part of, uh, of flying the aircraft. And it was in the Nat too, don't get me wrong, it was. And I mean, at, at Valley, we did have, uh, where we instructed on the aircraft, we were very fortunate to have um, Mona only just down, down the way. So if we had a problem at Valley, for example, where we had three runways anyway, all right, some of them, the wind was always blowing at Valley, so prob probability is you've only had one that you could actually use. But normally we could always pop down to Mona. So if you, and we did have people with shorter fuel who had to go into Mona uh, instead. So yes, no, I'm, I'm not uh, not being. Uh, uh, fuel did require management in, in that. You had to knew, to, you had to know sort of how how much fuel you needed to recover down the the dive arc, as we called it. How much fuel you needed for the uh, the whether it was run and break or um, feed into a GCA ground controlled approach, whatever. So there was plenty of planning to do, and you had to know how much fuel you were using for an individual circuit. So yeah, but I don't think we had too many people were sort of um, getting ultra short of fuel. Now you had to be quite grown up about it. It was one aspect of the uh, that kept you very disciplined, wasn't it? Yes. Whereas but, in the Hawk, I recall, you know, it was you were never really worried about it. No, I mean the Hawk's different. I mean, the Hawk is compared with the Nat. The Hawk is viceless. Absolutely, yes, and yes. Good job the frontline aeroplane airplanes are pretty viceless nowadays. <laughs> so more on that subject, uh, I was interested to read um, the one of the Finnish Air Force pilots' comments. Uh, on the Nat F1 when he was describing flying dissimilar air combat against the Draken. The Draken, you seem to use its fuel so fast that yep. the Nat would stay airborne 
it would have one fight with the drak and then they would go away and another formation would come up and they'd stay airborne for another fight. So perhaps the F1 had a bit more fuel or just perhaps the Draken was very thirsty? I think the Draken was very thirsty. Okay. <laughs> rather rather like the lightning, quite frankly. I mean, you know. Yeah. And, and I did do some, and interesting enough, and, and it's in the book, um, I led a detachment to RAF Coningsby, in fact, of Nats, to do dissimilar air combat with the Phantoms there. Ah. Um, which was, I mean, the Phantom had plenty of fuel in it anyway. But it was, it was, it, it, that was an interesting experience. Mm. Mm. I know. Uh, being able to fight an aircraft that could almost disappear if you pointed at someone yeah. must have been wonderful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. So, um, in your book, it contains some great stories, like the Indian uh, squadron commander who told his pilots to check their guns after takeoff by firing a few Aden cannon shells into a nearby river without realizing it was used by hundreds of local people <laughs> for their daily ablutions. Uh, do you have a particular favorite story in the book? Uh, no, I don't think I do. I just, I, I just have. Um, it's rather like I, I, I just like everything that's in the book. Basically, don't, no, I don't think I do have. A, I get asked this sort of question quite a lot. I get asked the question particularly about my myself, and which is my greatest memory. The trouble is, I've got so many memories. It's difficult. I find it difficult to have a favourite story. I do. Uh, excellent. So, the Night Boys isn't the only amazing aviation book you've authored because you've mentioned you penned a biography called yeah. uh, The Rate of Climb. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that and what we would expect if we sat down and read it? Um, it's very different from Nat Boys for a start, Nat, Nat, purely about the Nat, whereas Rate of Climb is my autobiography. It covers my life. So, uh, and it's gone down very well. But, um, you know, it's not just an, a book about my flying career. It also covers my life growing up and and in both South Africa and the UK and and what I've done since I left the Air Force. So it's my whole my whole life. So it's it's very different. Um, I am intending my third book, which I'm thinking about now and, and beginning to research, is going to be, I think, I hope, um, about my father and I. And that will be a pure flying book, sort of um, comparing, relating what he did in his days in World War Two flying the hurricane um, in all sorts of um, situations with my days flying the lightning phantom nat um, tornado etc but um, I'm, I'm, that's in my mind at the moment that's that's my task for that's my task for the winter of um, 23 24 excellent and mm. I, I look forward to uh, what you produce now, is there anything else that you'd like us to talk about before uh, we wind this up, Frank? Um, I'm so pleased that Nat Boys has been published. I'm very pleased at some of the reviews, it's early days, some of the reviews we're receiving. Um, and people are clearly enjoying the stories that are in the book. And Tom and I, we were very, very satisfied with what... Uh, what we produce and what's in the book, because it, there's something there for, for everyone, and it's a real, and and it was it, it it's filled an, an, a niche in the market that was needed. Um, 
No, I, I just, you know, I, I set out in life. I didn't intend to write any books, quite frankly. And uh, it's, a, it's a, a big story behind my, writing my autobiography, my first book. But having done that, I learnt a lot. And um, that led on to the production of um, my second book, which, which is a bit different from, I mean, I didn't write this all myself. We, we produced it, and, uh, but uh, it was a very satisfying effort. Um, yeah, I, 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 like everything in life, I've learnt, learnt a lot. And I think um, writing books seems to be something I'm a growing interest in my life. Congratulations. Uh, I enjoyed it enormously and thank you very much indeed for giving us your time. It's been a pleasure seeing you again and good luck with the Nat Boys. Um, and Nick, if I might say so, it's great to see you again. Sort of, uh, You bring back memories um, to me of um, days at Valley and uh, you mentioned um, you know, your, your navigation prowess at, <laughs> at Valley. <laughs> And one of the things I was proud proud of at Batty, if I can just say, was um, the fact that I was came off lightning, basically, and I was an air defence pilot, so I didn't do sort of that much sort of uh, low flying uh, then. But at Valley, we did a lot of low flying, and um, I used to love love it. And I did the pilot navigation instructor course, mainly reserved for those who come off the the low level mud moving world. Um, so I broke into their territory. And that was, that was really one of the most satisfying things that I, I, I did there. And that's how we first came into contact. Yeah. Then, of course, at Lucas, Differing Squadrons, mainly in the bar, I think it was there, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I'm very glad that you did that course, Rick, because without it, I think my flying career would have ground to a halt at Valley. But I really appreciate it, and thanks very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you, Nick. The Nat Boys isn't just a historic record of one of the many fast jet trainers used by the RAF because most of them have come and gone without leaving an indelible mark on the memories of those who flew it like the Nat did. It earned many nicknames like the Pocket Rocket, the Paraffin Dart and the Sabre Slayer to name just a few. Its sleek, needle-like appearance and remarkable manoeuvrability weren't the only things to imprint it on an entire generation of aviation lovers. It was the glorious sight of nine bright red gnats of the RAF's formation team flying twinkle rolls in close formation that ensured it became an enduring memory. This book encapsulates all of that, but then reveals the wonderful memories of many pilots who flew in it in particular, armed with only a pair of Aden cannons, taking the Nat into combat to bring down enemy aircraft. This book is more about just one tiny aircraft. It's about a shared love of flying that has touched pilots across the world. And I truly commend it to you. Well, that was brilliant, wasn't it? Mm. Always uh, fascinating listening to what Rick's got to say. And um, I think Nick got the very best out of him as mm. well. On, on that day. They hadn't seen each other for a very long time as well. So you yeah. always get those extra bits and you know bits of stories from, from things in the past. Really enjoyed uh, that whole story. Of course and of course with 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 Nick's background as well of course. I mean and, and yeah, this doesn't this sounds really patronizing and I don't mean it like that, but it's like because he really knows what what Rick was talking about. So you can then form your questions if you like, your 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 conversation if you like around the fact that they both know so much about the subject which for me as a as a listener and a and a, a viewer of the content is just just so refreshing because uh you know 
talk about well researched in in the subject that he's going to be talking about and there are a lot of interviews in my opinion who don't go to the level of um research that they need to if you like in order to get a good interview and that's the one thing that that nick is very very good at couldn't agree more and um yeah i i really enjoyed it very very entertaining and uh, just just a great insight on on what went on back in the day there well my uh, favorite from 2022 again we're going to go back to september of this year uh, 2022 to the jersey international air display and we managed to pack in a lot there as uh, matt was saying but one of the highlights for me was that uh, jonathan from swissport very kindly got us airside access and that's, this was really important because it meant that we could actually go and see up close and personal the ov10 bronco that chuck uh, was flying um chuck was very much part of the, the the main air display um but the morning before all that happened we got the chance to uh talk to chuck and carlos got the chance to go inside the ov10 bronco you can only imagine uh, that he will be dining out on that uh, story for, for many for, years yeah. to come but uh, <laughs> anyway let's uh, let's take a look at what happened we're back at the uh, Jersey Airport here. We're, we're lucky enough to get uh, airside access. I'm back with Chuck, and we're actually with the aircraft itself, the Bronco. Chuck, welcome back. Yeah. It's great to be here Yeah, and sure. see the yeah, aircraft well up close. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, tell us a bit about uh, what's going on in here. This, this yeah. looks like a cargo area. Yeah, this, this is cargo. Uh, it, it's why I, I was telling you uh, that it's a Swiss knife because he's able to, to do everything. And inside... We can put 1.4 ton, okay? And uh, American were used to, to put five paratroops, and they were picking out the ejection seat from the rear part and all the, um, uh, the avionics, okay? Because in the OV-10A, it was not uh, canopy with plexiglass, it was full, okay? And uh, there were no passenger inside. For us, we put one passenger, it's our mechanics. <laughs> we don't punish it, uh, it's <laughs> because there is only two places in front, okay? And for us, we will put four paratroops, okay? And it's why you were asking me, the float is very, uh, the, the, uh, the floor is very- uh, Very clean, very, very shiny. clean yeah. and shining. And we put a, a box to preserve the avionics, and it's better for the first paratroops uh, with its, its parachute. So it's clean and it can't. Uh, uh, it's not possible that something uh, hurts uh, the parachute safety. Okay. Yeah. Hence, is that why the yeah, the know, yeah. Normally, uh, the American was making wood, full wood, uh, contreplaqué. Uh, sorry, I don't know the term. And we we put plexiglass, but because for us it's easier to see all the cables and something like that. It's not necessary to take it out. Okay, as we make check every flight. Uh, to check the cable because all the cable of uh, the, the um, uh, direction and the elevator are passing là, here, okay? And also all the command of the flaps are passing here in the, in the uh, cellule, in the um, cellule of the, the aircraft. So are the flaps cable or, or uh, rods? Most part is cable, okay? Yeah. But sometimes we have... Uh, uh, iron, not iron. Uh, I don't know. So, so we tube. Oh, so tube yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But more past ninety percent is cable, because for the the uh, elevator, the stick is passing here, uh, just here, 
passing in the moon, in the boom, that part of the aircraft we call that a boom, okay? And climbing here and passing on the elevator. Wow. So the emblem on the on the back there, the European Fighter Museum, that's a special Alors, is that special only for, for, this, uh, for this year because it's the 25th anniversary? Like the jersey I show with Mike Higgins, it's where I show you yesterday we have yeah. a special patch. And as you, you can see, it's nearly the same patch for jersey and for the museum. And outside, and there is also the website of the museum, www.acntlm.com, okay? Since 1997. 25 years, and outside there is a special uh, decoration for the the last meeting we made in Cambria with the tiger and Nuga. You know that as the Bronco is coming from Montelimar, and the speciality of Montelimar it's a candy, it's Nuga. Okay, that's why yeah. the, the the tiger was normally uh, taking a, a ball of rugby playing rugby and we replace it by a, a piece of nougat <laughs> uh, I saw the website I saw, did see the website yeah. I looked, looked last okay. night yeah. yeah it's very it's very good it's, I'm going to have to make a, a trip yeah. to, to come over and see the website um, so in the back here you've got some foot pedals there is that so yes. for, the, the, for the for the rest of the mechanics he can put his, <laughs> his foot he put his feet uh, no, it's not a, it's just a, to put because it's um, uh uh, it's fragile. Yeah. Okay. It's wood, with with plexiglass. It's wood. Oh, okay. Yeah. And there is only two uh, uh, two balls uh, to, to take it. I expect it's a nice view. Yeah. When yeah, you're yeah, yeah, yeah. sitting here, especially from... because if you look here, it's camouflage. It's a cover, but you can see outside. From the other side, we yeah. make it that. Be careful, here. We make it that uh, to to respect the cover of the aircraft. With this cover, is a desert storm, because. Not that one, but uh, the Bronco made disaster from the air carrier, okay? And American guys lose uh, two, uh, two aircraft. One uh, crew was uh, killed and the other one ejected. It was prisoner of the American guys. So how, comf- how comfortable is it on the flight deck in the, in the, in the seat, pilot seat? How com- is it comfortable? Yeah, Lots very of sure. Room. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you are sit here like that, so the view is perfect, yeah, yeah. okay? I propose you to, to go in front, okay? <laughs> to, okay. <laughs> so I've um, uh, been very lucky indeed to come on board on the flight deck here of the Bronco. Chuck's very kindly uh, given me access to the, uh, the, the front seat, which I must say was quite the effort to get into. Um, I just about survived, but uh, it's amazing sitting here. The the, the I can't express the, the amount of view that you've got here on the on the flight deck. The the actual pilot's vision is fantastic. Great massive windows that you can see on the side here. Everything is very very open. Obviously, lots of steam gauges, lots and lots of steam gauges. Um, undercarriage gear and the gear control here. You've got throttle controls just on my left here, and your feathering controls for the props and fuel shutoff valves just on here um, but as you can probably see Nev's uh, got the camera here in a good position you can see there is no um, Garmin um, sat navs in fact we have got here your old school uh, map for finding out where you are 
But one thing I will say, plenty of air vents for letting the air in, because I'd, I'd imagine this is quite the greenhouse to be flying in when you're uh, in, in the aircraft. Single stick in the centre here, like control stick, probably C. And yeah, it's actually quite roomy. It is very roomy. Uh, rear view mirror, which is always handy, and there is a seat behind me as well. But um, very nice, very, I feel very lucky indeed to um, have been given the opportunity to come and, uh, come and sit on here. So uh, from me, Carlos, here on the Bronco, back to you in the studio. Now, just remind me, Nev, what that aircraft was that Carlos was sat in. Oh, the, that's the OV-10 Bronco. Right, um, okay. And, um, I mean, I'm glad he was sitting in it. I'm not <laughs> I was going to say. I could have got out of it. <laughs> Is it one of those, was it like, you know, you needed like one of the shoehorn things to sort of like leave yourself out of it. Doesn't, it's a, it's a cosy looking beast. Uh, uh, yeah. Armando, have you been anywhere near one of these things? <laughs> uh, I've only ever seen them at air shows, uh, the OV-10. But yeah. Nev, I was, I was surprised that you picked that one because that officially put us over the top didn't it Does, doesn't that make this the the ptuk new year's military special because that's three military stories true uh, that is oh. very that is a good point um, yeah so yeah. May, maybe i'm coming round to the idea oh. of Quick, we, we better send him a mug. Military items for, for next year. I don't know. Oh. December 31st, 2022. You guys heard it. <laughs> you heard it here first. Absolutely. We'll have to get you one of uh, one of the mugs on its way to to, to you. We can get you a, a, a Mac mug on its way to you as soon as Mugs. Possible, Forget the mug. I'm getting him a flight suit and a leather jacket to walk around. <laughs> well, there's a treat. Oh, dear, dear, dear. <laughs> well, it's been a, a fantastic yeah hasn't it you know mm. we, we've covered a lot of stuff uh, and we're going to air shows once again yes that's that's really good we've got a lot of things lined up for 2023 um and we're going back to jersey again uh, in september we've got a lot of other things planned before that though and um, we'll be hopefully coming back to you with some of those details in the first mm. yeah, month or so of the new year but um yeah mm. it's, it's been a really great time uh, the last 12 months lots of stuff Lots of new things to do, and actually, we've got people asking us to interview I know, them. Very well. exciting! So Looking forward to that. Good. We've got some quite interesting stuff coming up um, in the next month or so uh, with regard to trends in aviation, shall oh, we say? And we've okay. got um, somebody from one of the uh, transport committees from the UK government uh, coming on the show to yeah, chat. With us really about. looking forward to that. It's going to be fascinating. Indeed, sure. Absolutely, it's uh, it's going to be a busy old year um for for us i have no doubt of course with with being able to go to air shows and uh, and that again that's that that's only can only be a good thing can it can't wait to get back out there and and, and start enjoying some uh proper sort of air shows again it's going to be a lot of fun uh so nev um what are you doing for new year we're recording this on new year's eve i should say um so nothing like leaving it till the last minute and uh, <laughs> it's uh, what are you doing with your new year's eve well, actually, just down the road from us is a small Indian restaurant, which is very nice indeed, actually. Lovely. And uh, we booked a table there well, a month or so ago because it's our sort of favourite place to go on New Year's Eve, so we'll be going down there. But, of course, the diet will have to begin after that. Uh, <laughs> Quite. Yes, absolutely, yes. No point in starting while you're out, on, out for dinner, eh? What about you, Armando? What are you up to? Well, we, we just spent an entire week up in Washington, D.C. for Christmas with both of our families, Megan's family and my family. So we're kind of uh, tripped out and social. our social bucket is empty. So for, for today, New Year's Eve, there are four college football games that are on and we're just going to sit by the fire, 
and watch college football until we fall asleep about nine o'clock and then we'll watch the fireworks tomorrow morning <laughs> on replay. I'll watch it on tape. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sounds yeah. good. Oh, wow. College football. Wow. Blimey. That's, 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 that's quite the, quite the thing. It's like, I, I always sort of feel like it is, is that like sort of Super Bowl, but like, you know, like toned down. <laughs> I don't know that it's even that toned down. I, I think the bowl, the the college football bowl games, all the playoff games, are are pretty popular here. They're almost as popular as uh, professional football or NFL. Wow. Um, so it's a it's a pretty, uh, you know, all the, all the bars and restaurants will all have the bowl games on today. Nice. Uh, right. Sounds good. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, that's it, Nev. It is, yes. And just like to thank all of our viewers and listeners in 2022 for supporting the show, as mm. you do. That makes a massive difference to us in terms of bringing you the content that we can, uh, helping with media serving costs, all kinds of ancillary costs that we have uh, within the organisation uh, from time to time. But uh, it's just been a, a great year. And I'd just like to thank everybody for Absolutely. contributing. Uh, so much especially in the chat room we, we really enjoy the interaction yeah. there uh, the, the, the chat room is just such a, a great thing it's the best thing about recording i mean recording everything live if you see what i mean does bring its own challenges but that that the chat room is why it's worth it very much so yeah. so from armando uh, over in the stateside um from matt over in the pt uk master suite studio and from myself thank you very much indeed for your superb contributions to our show this year and it's your show of course not just ours mm. and we'll be back for a live show seven o'clock uk time on friday the 6th of january so make sure you tune in to us then that's all for now happy new year Bye for now. Happy New Year, everyone. Bye, y'all.